Okay, please open your Bibles to the book of Judges. Last week we had an introduction to the book of Judges. This week we will actually delve into the book of Judges. And you're all waiting breathlessly to see how far shall we delve. Well, that remains to be seen. So we open our exposition of the book of Judges tonight with its first prologue. The book of Judges actually has two prologues in it before we get to the main body of the accounts or the stories of the judges themselves. So what is the purpose for a prologue? Why is it there? Why do we find two of them there? Well, the purpose for a prologue and a literary work is to give background and context to the story. Now, it's important that we understand that because we're going to see some things in the first chapter of Judges that require explaining. Um, And they, they can be explained if we keep in mind that we're dealing with a prologue, something that is getting us ready for the main story. In this first prologue, that we deal with, which begins, of course, with verse 1 of chapter 1 and continues into chapter 2 and and verse 5. And then the second prologue picks up at that point and carries on to the beginning of of chapter uh, 3. This first prologue deals with the social fragmentation in Israel. And this social fragmentation is illustrated by the worsening political and military condition that we will see amongst the 12 tribes. So we begin, of course, with the first verse. And we're going to start with just the first clause of the first verse, which contains a very terse statement after the death of Joshua. So immediately, as we begin this book, we're confronted with the great enemy of mankind, which is death. Death, which has been brought upon us by the sin of our first parents. Death, which will plague and haunt us until Christ returns. And we're promised in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So we can see death as the great enemy, the last to be destroyed, the one that we must deal with for whatever period of time we have until the end of the age. So this clause, this first clause that we read, this harkens back to the ending of the book of Joshua, and it serves as a bridge connecting the two books, um, because in the end of Joshua, that's where we read about his death occurring occurring historically. Um, But both accounts are very matter-of-fact. And when we read them, we can detect no evidence of an emotional response to this death. No sense of mourning over the death of this important leader. Which in some ways is kind of odd, but really it's not from a biblical viewpoint. Because we see this repeated with all of the great Old Testament leaders. We should take note, there's something very interesting that happens when the Bible records the death of one of God's faithful servants, this seems to punctuate a new beginning that is about to occur. Take, for example, the Exodus. Exodus begins with the death of Joseph. The book of Joshua begins with the death of Moses. Judges, as we just saw, begins with the death of Joshua. And the book of Kings begins with the death of David. And there's nothing accidental or happenstance about this. No, not at all. We can derive something from this. There's there's a realization we should see that God raises up men to accomplish in history what he has decreed shall come to pass. These records being, being used as boundary markers, these records of death point us to God's sovereignty, the fact of that over history and over human events. 
in each of these important Old Testament leaders of God's people, lived to an advanced age. So this is something interesting that, that I want us to think about for a moment. They lived to a ripe old age and died of what we would call natural causes. They live lives that run fully and often exceed the limits that God has placed upon us as far as our, our mortal years on this earth until they meet their earthly end. We see this limit that God gives us in uh, the book of Psalms. Psalm 90 verse 10 tells us that the years of our life are 70, 70 years. And even by reason of strength, 80. So if you're really strong and you eat right and you get plenty of rest, yada, 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 you might make it to 80. Now, <laughs> I know there are some here that have made it well past 80, so I can just imagine the strength that you possess to, to do that. So God bless you for that. But the Psalm 90.10 goes on uh, after saying that perhaps we'll, we can live to 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. And this is something we all recognize as we get on in years, right? That the years just fly by and there's so much stuff that we have to deal with. There's so much hard things, but yet time doesn't drag as we get older. It seems to speed up. So this is what I want to point out here. Um, think of these lifespans that were given, 70, maybe 80 years. Well, Moses, he lived to 120 years. Joseph lived to 110 years. Joshua, the same, lived to 110 years. Then we come to David, 70 years. So what's going on here? These, the first three boundary marker leaders of Israel, Moses, Joseph, and Joshua, I would say what we're, what we're being told in the biblical text is they live a full lifespan plus a biblical generation, which is 40 years. So they are given a full life, then God adds a full generation to their life. Why is that? I think it's because it's pointing forward to something that is just a glimmer at times in the Old Testament. And that is the life that God promises us beyond what we experience. We are told that we will perhaps get 70 or 80 years. But we know as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, that our life is much more than that. And in this, I think, is the foreshadowing that we're seeing that's kind of hidden in the lifespans of these leaders. But what, do you, what about David? David lives 70 years. He lives the full lifespan, the minimum one, that God has promised, regardless of the fact that he's a murderer and an adulterer. He is given this fullness. And in this, I want us to see an assurance of eternal life, where God is saying here, I suggest that yes, even though this man fell far short, he was a man after my own heart. He repented, he returned back to me in obedience, and I gave him everything that I promised. That's an assurance to us as we struggle through these 70 or 80 years or however long we have, that whatever struggles that we do encounter, whatever stumbles we have along the way that God is faithful to the promises that he gives us. So those who are depicted as righteous and anointed by God in the Old Testament, think about this, they rarely, if ever, experience violent death. Now I'm talking about the ones who are righteous and anointed and remain so. Saul is, did not remain so, did he? God's anointing was removed from Saul, and Saul died a violent death in battle. But the others all seem to live these long, full lives. Well, that's wonderful. But contrast this with the central figures of the faith in the New Testament. Virtually all of them 
according to scripture or according to church tradition, suffer martyrs' deaths. They do not usually live this long, full, peaceful life. An exception, some may argue, is the Apostle John, who reportedly lived to an advanced age. However, according to church tradition, the Roman Empire attempted once, maybe twice, to execute John and was unsuccessful. Um, And thus, he is technically considered a martyr, but was saved by God's grace, if you will. The first incident, supposedly, was being boiled alive in oil. He survived that. The second, which we know very well from the book of Revelation, is his exile to the island of Patmos, which ordinarily was um, like a death sentence. It was a banishment. So what are we to make of this? In the Old Testament times, long life was often viewed as a sign of God's blessing. If you lived long, if you had many children, if you were prosperous, these were signs that God was blessing you. Although there are exceptions to this, it's revealed that God blesses some of his people by, by, by taking them early in death and sparing them from witnessing and going through earthly judgments. Um, the good Judean king, uh, Josiah, is, a, is an example of that. God says, I will, I will take you so you do not witness what I will do to Judah. Why is there this shift? Well, not surprisingly, it's the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ changes everything. The death of God the Son is the event by which God the Father decreed would clearly reveal that eternal life with him is the destiny of his people. There's no mistake about that in the New Testament, which is, which is a glimmer at times slightly obscured, at times pretty brilliant in the Old Testament, becomes remarkably clear in the New Testament. Christ is now to be the pattern for God's faithful flock, which often includes a death that advances God's kingdom. Because no longer do we perceive God's blessing as to be, well, at least we should not, although there are some preachers and some churches that, that proclaim this, our blessing is not being prosperous materially. Our blessing is not a long leisurely life. It's not a long retirement playing golf. It's not huge IRAs and 401ks. Our blessing is to be adopted into the family of God and to be graced with the blessing of being part of advancing God's kingdom by living Christ-like, obedient lives. So the era of Joshua closes with his death. And it is common, the death of a leader brings a political crisis. This is what we commonly see. The question immediately comes up, who will take charge now? I'm going to offer you some illustrations here so we can think this through. Because this is not what we're going to see in the Old Testament. We do not see the same reaction that we might see in a secular situation. And by illustration, think of the the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Many of you lived through that as I did, although I was an extremely young child. I do remember the events of that day. Others of you, I'm sure um, everybody has at least heard of it. But on that, on that faithful day in 1963 when the president was murdered, there was things that happened. First off, there was a fear of an external attack. Although things calmed down by God's good graces rapidly, initially no one was sure what had happened, why it had happened. There wasn't time to change the DEFCON status. Many generals of Air bases of the Strategic Air Command launched their nuclear bombers primarily to get them off the ground in case of missile strikes. 
even if the Soviet Union wasn't involved in the murder, it was thought this would be a perfect time for the Soviets to strike us. We need to get our assets in the air so they can't be destroyed. Thankfully, there were back-channel assurances to the USSR by our government that we did not suspect them. Things rapidly calmed down on an international level because of that. But there was a fear of an internal crisis. A president had been murdered. Who had murdered him? Who was involved in this? Was it one man? Was it a plot? Was this an attempted coup? Now, there was very, very serious discussions about this being a coup attempt, very much like what had happened with President Abraham Lincoln when Confederate sympathizers attempted to decapitate the entire Union government in one fell swoop on one night, but the only one they were able to kill was President Lincoln. The others escaped. It was so dicey, this idea of a coup, that many high-ranking government officials, including the U.S. Attorney General, Robert F. Kennedy, the brother of the murdered president, issued orders that the U.S. Secret Service was to be kept away from them and their family in case these men who were tasked with guarding the president were involved in the coup and involved in the murder. Because where in history does it show us that uh, uh, decapitations of monarchs, um, the, the, the taking down of those in power, often occur coming from the palace guard? which in our modern sense would be the Secret Service. So this was, this was a very upsetting time. But things were done to make a quick transition and calm things. If you remember that very stark, poignant photo of, of Lyndon Baines Johnson being sworn in on Air Force One with, with Jackie Kennedy standing next to him, in a blood-stained dress with her husband, our murdered president's blood, splattered all over her. It seemed incredibly morbid, but there was a reason for it. There was a reason to show that there was a quick transition to power, that our government was in continuity, that, that we had a president, that there, this wasn't something that was being made up to, to move men around, that one man had been murdered, you could see his widow there in a bloodstained dress, and another man was taking the oath of office within an hour or so of the announcement of the president's death. This maintained the status quo. It reassured citizens of our continuity of government, uh, as I said. Interestingly, at this point in our history, we were struggling with the idea of secession. How does, how does it play out? The Constitution wasn't very clear on it, and we had issues in the past. In 1841, President William Henry Harrison died after one month in office, and no one knew what should happen next. John Tyler was the vice president, and he moved into power, and Congress was debating, well, is he as an acting president? Is he, is he just the vice president um, in a full-time status, so to speak. What is, what, how do we deal with this? Well, John Tyler moved forward and had a federal judge issue, basically a proclamation uh, that gave him the office of presidency, and it kind of settled things. But we realized, even in 1963, at the time Kennedy was assassinated, that the Constitution wasn't clear. And Congress was trying to hash out this issue of secession. And the president's murder moved it forward, and the 25th Amendment was then passed and ratified uh, with this impetus behind it, this murder of this man. So this is in contrast. I mean, just think of all the drama here, you know, all the struggles, you know, deciding, like, you know, well, who's trying to be the top dog? Um, you know, are, are we going to be taking advantage of it, et cetera, et cetera? There's a lot of things going on, but we contrast this with what we find in the Bible regarding anointed leadership. When we go back to the book of Numbers, Moses inquired of the Lord as to who should be his successor. And the Lord responded to Moses that it was to be Joshua. 
God chose the man that was going to take Moses' place. However, when we come to Joshua's life, there's no secession plan made. Why not? This, this is very interesting when you think about it. So the task of Moses and his successor Joshua was to deliver Israel out of bondage in Egypt and bring them into the promised land. Moses led the battles of conquest and defeated the pagan kings east of the Jordan River, the boundary of the land of Canaan. Joshua led the battles for conquest and defeated the pagan kings west of the Jordan River, inside the land of Canaan. So Joshua's campaign basically in Canaan broke the back of the major resistance from the Canaanites. Remember from our introduction, the Canaanites is like an umbrella term. There's lots of different tribes and clans involved in this. This is not a united people, so to speak. It's not like the Babylonian Empire, the Hittite Empire, Syrian Empire. These are a bunch of um, very warlike, very dangerous, very powerful, very fierce people. So Yahweh reveals to Joshua that he is to die soon. We see this in the 13th chapter of Joshua. And God says to Joshua, quote, there remains very much land to possess. So the conquest of Canaan is not over. God is reminding Joshua of this. Hey, you guys aren't done, basically, is what he's saying. So all of the Philistines, with their five major coastal cities, along with the Sidonians and the Amorites, these are clans associated with the giant clans that so badly frightened most of the Israelite spies before the people entered the promised land when Moses sent them in to spy out. These people were still in the land. But God informed Joshua, I myself will drive them, drive them out from before the people. So God is saying he is going to drive out. He is going to lead the conquest. So Yahweh gives no instructions to Joshua to appoint a successor. Instead, he instructs Joshua to allot the land to Israel as an inheritance. So each tribe of Israel is allotted a land now, and the implication is that they are to fight for that land and drive out the Canaanites who are in it, these, these wicked people that have lost their right to the land. So Joshua charged the leaders of Israel in Joshua chapter 23, near the end of the book, that the same conditions which guided them under his command were to continue. They were to continue the holy war against the inhabitants of the land, those that remained in the land. They were to fear God and they were to remain true to the law of Yahweh, or Torah. And Israel would be led by the Lord of hosts. Now, there's a military connotation to this. Basically, what he's saying is that the divine warrior will lead you. The host, that's the heavenly army. The divine warrior will lead them in driving out the enemy from the land. So, after... This, Joshua leads all of Israel in a covenant renewal ceremony at Sechem. In essence, they are reaffirming their oath to God. They, they are re-swearing their loyalty. In Joshua 24, 29, we read, After these things, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old, and they buried him in the hill country of Ephraim. That's his tribal allotment. So this brings us back to this opening line of Judges after the death of Joshua. However, here's an issue that, that, that we need to explain as we, as we move through this. We find Joshua is still living in Judges chapter 2, verse 6. A number of events in 
Joshua chapter 1, actually occur before the death of Joshua. Remember, we talked about prologue, establishing background and context. That's why that's important to recognize this. We know these events occurred before his death because they're first recorded in the book of Joshua as occurring prior to Joshua's death. He's involved in these incidents. So we touched on this in the introduction, but it's important I want to go over because I want you to really capture this idea. And if you weren't here and you didn't hear it, you need to hear it. In our modern Christian Bible, in a modern scholarly work, Joshua and Judges are placed under the biblical category of historical books. Now, if we look at these books as purely historical, we have a problem. This, this becomes troubling. If a human author was writing down these events as they occurred, then how do we explain this timeline? It's like if you've seen the movie The Matrix, you know, and that black cat goes across the doorway, then the black cat, same black cat, comes across the doorway again. There's a glitch in reality that's going on. Either we have something like that, where the exact same events are repeated again, and there's a glitch in our reality, or it's a result of a bad editing job centuries after the events, where some scribe gets his, his, his papyrus scrolls mixed up and reimposes events that already occurred you know, in a different timeline. Obviously, neither of those are the answer. Right, and being kind of ludicrous here. And some may ask, does it, does it even really matter? Well, yes, of course it does, because we need to understand the Bible to the best of our ability. Imagine reading a history of the U.S., and you come to this line that says, after the death of President Abraham Lincoln, and then you read about the Emancipation Proclamation being issued, the Battle of Gettysburg's occurring, uh, General Lee surrenders the Army of Northern Virginia to uh, General Grant's Army of the Potomac at Appomattox Courthouse. Um, there's a problem. You would have a problem with that historian. He's got, like, he's, he's got his events wrong, and a historian shouldn't do that. Does history jumble time like this, placing an event at one point and then repeating it exactly at, a, at another time? No, when we read something like that, we call it science fiction or fantasy. It's not history. But what we're reading in the Bible certainly is not fantasy. Of course, it's not science fiction. There's another explanation here. Because we need to put stock, absolute rock-solid stock, in the historical accuracy of the Bible. And I claim that we can and that there are explanations for these things that we read. But we just have to delve into it a little bit, requires a little bit of hard work, and it requires sometimes a little bit of different thinking from maybe what we're used to. But it's nothing that upsets the theological apple cart, so to speak. So this, this, these, this repetition of these historical events that I speak of, this gives us insight into how the Jews viewed the book. Now, the, the Jewish scribes did not consider these books historical like Christian theologians consider them in the same sense. They classified them as prophetic writings. They were part of the former prophets, the book of Joshua and the book of Judges. Now, they certainly do recount historical events. The, the, the events that are recorded in them did in fact happen. But they're recounted in a prophetic manner. And what do I mean by this? We need to, we need to define prophecy, I think, here. Because often we think of, of prophecy primarily as foretelling of events to come. That is, predict, not predicting, but telling the future, so to speak. Um, what is going to happen in the future. And although there's certainly an important element of that in biblical prophecy, biblical prophecy's main point is not revealing the future. No, not at all. Its main purpose is what we call forthtelling, not foretelling. Forthtelling 
is the revelation of God's truth to a disobedient people, warning them of impending judgment for their sin. You have strayed from God's law, and this is what's going to happen to you. Speaking of a future event, that is biblical prophecy. It's given as a warning to repent and return in obedience to God and his law. Prophecy can make use of metaphors, but it does not use symbology like apocalyptic literature does. Now, we've we've gone through... um, Uh, a large part of the book of Revelation with Pastor Steve. uh, Pastor Steve has been teaching the the book of apocalyptic literature in the Bible. Old Testament has some, book of Daniel, book of Ezekiel, have some apocalyptic literature contained in them, but they are full of, this, this genre, apocalyptic, is full of symbology. You don't find that in prophetic writings. Apocalyptic literature is writings directed to God's faithful people. Apocalyptic literature is given to us as reassurance and as hope, not as warning of impending judgment. So you see the two different target audiences that are involved here. So we are in prophetic writing right here. This is a forthtelling to the Israelites of things to come if they are disobedient to Yahweh. And remember, they have just sworn, resworn allegiance to him. It's fresh on their mind. They basically, they raised their right hand again and they took their oath. Chapter 1 of Judges tells of some successes that the Israelites enjoy under the leadership of Yahweh and flashing back to leadership under Joshua. But we're going to see clear signs of what can be termed canonization. They're becoming like the Canaanites in the way they act. In other words, Israel is disintegrating socially and culturally, adopting traits and customs of the pagans that surround them repeating some of the successes they had under Joshua. And like I said, these flashbacks provide contrast between the periods before and after Joshua's death. Now, this issue of leadership is vital for Israel, just as it is for us as a people today. We know that God raises up leaders at all levels in all organizations, whether it be political Um, business, whether it be ecclesiastical, that is in the church, for good and for bad. And the prophet Isaiah, in his writings, it's revealed to him, and he makes this very clear. Isaiah gives a warning of what is to befall the southern kingdom of Judah and Jerusalem due to wickedness and falling away from God. And that judgment that is to befall Judah includes the removal of proper leadership which leads to the social order being destroyed and weakens the kingdom militarily. Isaiah chapter 3, this happens very early in Isaiah. Verse 4, Yahweh tells Isaiah, And I will make boys their princes, and infants shall rule over them. And then later in that chapter, verse 12, Yahweh says, My people, Infants are their oppressors, and women rule over them. So Isaiah does not mean this literally. He means this metaphorically as an insult, basically. There were no babies or women on the throne of Judah. So we can't, we know right there, it's it's not literal. He's speaking of the lack of wisdom, maturity, and foresight in leaders when he calls them infants. It's like they're more interested in ice cream cones than the state of the nation. And today, we have a supposed leader of our nation who must be led around like a child, told where to sit and what to say. Very much like Isaiah's warning, his prophecy. Remember, prophecy is a warning of impending judgment from God. And even John Calvin, John Calvin, he talked about 
leaders are given to nations, bad leaders are given to nations as part of God's judgment. John Calvin is lifting that out of Isaiah. He sees that clearly in the prophetic writings. And when Isaiah calls these leaders women, he's pointing out metaphorically that they are devoid of manly courage that was needed to lead a nation facing threats from powerful foreign adversaries. We should not, as I said, ignore the prophetic implications of the course, excuse me, of the curse of women leaders today. It kind of pains me to point out we see high-ranking government leaders in our own government that are biologically men but dress as women. What were formerly and properly called transvestites, since the current term transgender is a misnomer, no such thing as a transgender person. There's a transvestite, a man who dresses as a woman. We've known about that for centuries and more. This trend that we're seeing is a reiteration of the trend that was very obvious in pagan religions to make sacred the twisting of the two sexes. Pagan religions at the time of the Old Testament and, the, and, and forward incorporated transvestitism in priests and in worship services. It was considered holy and sacred. We shouldn't think this is surprising since so many people today view our government as God, thus giving priestly power to these demonically demented men who are dressing as women and the concerted push for increased gender dysphoria that we're seeing is part and parcel of our modern, modern definition of love and tolerance. This prophetic warning that, that God provides to Isaiah is timeless and should ring in our ears today, millennia later. It still applies. It applied then. It applies today. We should not discount it. Oh, that's old stuff. It doesn't apply as some... Christian leaders today, so-called leaders, would try and get their flocks to just leave the Old Testament. We need to unhitch our wagon from the Old Testament. We have the New Testament. No, God's word is one. It is one testament joined together. The Bible, human history, and current events clearly point out that fallen man is unable to wholly and fully rely on God The first verse of Judges tells us that Israel did do this initially. So they were off to a good beginning after the death of Joshua. We continue on to the second clause of verse 1. The people of Israel inquired of the Lord. After Joshua's death, the Israelites asked Yahweh something. Now, Barry Webb, in his commentary on Judges, he puts this very well, and I want to quote from him because I think it's, 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 it's really marvelous what he wrote. He says about this asking, what a disarmingly simple way to tell us that the Israelites understood themselves to be in a relationship with God. Yeah, right? Reminds us of the covenant, right? That they understood that at this point in time that they could go to their God and ask him. Well, we're in a covenant relationship. We can ask our God of whatever we need, whatever direction we want, just as easily, just as simply as the Israelites did. They could ask Yahweh questions and expect that he would hear and answer them. They were on speaking terms with him, so to speak. Of course, had Moses and Joshua, they'd been, and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It was the way it had always been from the beginning of Israel's history and of history itself. Of course, it was God, not they, who began the conversation. We should remember that. It's it's God who initiates the relationship. It's him that made it possible. And it was a real conversation that occurred. It was based on real revelation and real grace. They had met and come to know the God who draws people into relationship with himself by speaking to them and allowing them to speak to him. Isn't that wonderful that that we enjoy that privilege? 
in all parts of this conversation, we have to realize we're not of the same importance. It's just like any real relationship that we have in our life. Some of the conversations are very, very vital. Others, not so much so. Everything is not urgent. Everything's not an emergency. Our God does not want to hear from us just when the house is on fire and you know, the world has turned upside down on us. He wants to hear from us at all times. Certainly when the house is on fire, he wants to hear from us. Uh, as, as you well uh, acknowledge, you know, God already knows what's going on. He has us well within um, the palms of, of his hands when, when these things happen to us. Nor did God speak to everyone in the same way or with the same directness and intimacy, not even to all of his chosen prophets. Think of Moses. Since Moses, no prophet had arisen whom Yahweh knew face to face as he knew Moses. Moses had a special privilege there. But the conversation nevertheless did go on, and that's what's important to realize. And it remained at the very center of Israel's life with God. And Judges begins with the resumption of this conversation. The Israelites asked Yahweh something, and importantly, Yahweh replied. And as we shall see, dialogues, conversations, are at the core of the Judges' narrative as a whole and play a key role in the development of its themes, especially dialogues between the two principal characters, Yahweh and Israel. In Judges, last clause of Judges verse 1, this is the question that Israel poses to Yahweh. Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? So precisely how they asked, we're not told. The law of Moses indicates um, that as well as a duly appointed um, priest to function in this capacity as a, as a spokesperson between God and Israel, that they were to use the Urim and the Tumin. These two, we believe them to be stones worn on the breastplate, the ephod of the prince, or excuse me, not the prince, the priest. Um, they were normally used in seeking direction from God, according to Exodus and Leviticus. So um, somehow these were used to make decisions for the Israelites, that is to determine what God wanted them to do, exactly how these were used, we do not know. There's speculation um, on how it's used, but there's nothing in the biblical text that tells us exactly, nor do we need to know, because it's not for now, is it? It's, it's, it's something that was for a time that passed away. But this is how Joshua himself obtained instructions for his command decisions when he was conducting the wilderness campaign through the use of these stones and the priest. However, you know, um, uh, Dr. Webb cautions people studying judges that it's kind of hazardous just to assume that things are going as normal in the book of Judges because we're going to see things don't always go normal. So we should not make uh, assumptions. But in asking this question of God, we see that Israel understood how they were to proceed after Joshua had died. They were to rely on the Lord God to guide and direct them. And they understood what their task was to be. And that was to fight against the dreaded Canaanites. That was clear to them. Remember, fear of these inhabitants had precipitated a rebellion amongst the Israelites when the spies sent into the promised land by Moses brought back their report. In Numbers chapter 13, we read that the spies come back and they report the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who came from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Oh, that we had died in this wilderness. Why is it that the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? 
our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. This is mutiny, high treason. There was a change that we see, though, in Judges, right? At least temporarily, the Israelites had courage because their trust was in the Lord and not in themselves. What's interesting when we think about this, and this is, this is our closing thought, the names Joshua and Jesus, as some of you know, are the same in Hebrew. Joshua is Yehoshua, that means Yahweh is salvation. And Jesus, Yeshua, which is a post-exile variant of Yehoshua, and the post-exile variant, the, the part related to God's name has been extracted from it. It's called the Theophoric name. It's been removed. So it's, it's no longer, well, not been removed, but it's no longer clearly visible as an element. So we, so we don't clearly recognize that they're the same. But think about this. We're going to compare and contrast the two for a moment. Joshua completed the work of the first exodus in delivering Israel from the captivity and bondage to Pharaoh in Egypt. As we are all well aware, he led Israel into the promised land and brought them into rest, stability, safety, security in the land God had given them. But we'll see that this was not to be permanent. This rest did not last Joshua's work and that of Moses before him foreshadows the greater Joshua, Jesus Christ, who also leads his people out of bondage and sin to Satan. And this is a greater work that was beyond the ability of a human leader. The death of Joshua, I suggest to you, was a boundary event for national or physical Israel. It divides Israel's time into a before and an after just as Jesus is a boundary event for the entire world. His incarnation divides the time of mankind into a before and after, the A.D. and the B.C., after the death of Joshua, as we read in verse 1. After the death of Joshua, Joshua remained in the tomb The 12 tribes of Israel lapsed back into disobedience, into internal strife and apostasy. But after the death of Jesus, Jesus came out of the tomb, bringing the light of salvation and eternal life into the world. Jesus has accomplished what Joshua could not First Corinthians, we're told by Paul that God has put all things in subjection under Christ's feet. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 18, we're told Christ has the keys of death and Hades. There's our old enemy death, but Christ has the key. Then we're told in 1 Corinthians, borrowing from the writings in Isaiah and Hosea, that death is swallowed up in victory. In Revelation, near the end of the book, in 21.4, we're told, death shall be no more. The enemy is conquered. The enemy has been conquered by our Lord Jesus, who is our King of kings and Lord of lords. He is our superlative. There's nothing that can surpass him. Unlike any other good leader that we might be blessed to have, Jesus assures us, I am with you always to the end of the age. Remarkably, or maybe not remarkably, we heard that earlier today in our earlier service. And again, I'm struck on how these things, these themes repeat themselves in the preaching that's presented to our fellowship here. And the preachers don't get together and say, oh, this is our target verse. We're going to work this into all of our three sermons today. But it happens over 
and over again. And I've not seen this elsewhere, beloved. I've not. I truly tell you that the Holy Spirit is guiding us here in this church. And we should not be overly proud over this. It should humble us and make us grateful and thankful that our Lord loves us enough to provide this leadership to us. The leadership is coming from him. And those of us that stand before him, before you, are mere mouthpieces for him. And the good preaching that we are enjoying this summer at 10 a.m. from the men of our congregation is so rich because of the preaching that has gone on here for years. And we're blessed with Pastor Steve and Pastor Mike and this teaching that they've brought uh, forward. Anyway, so... Yes, now we know how far we're delving into Judges tonight. Chapter 1, verse 1. We've got one verse tonight, my friends. Um, Things will probably speed up, but there's important things that I wanted to bring forth tonight. Um, Thank you for your kind attention, and please join me in a closing prayer as we wrap up our service. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word. Father, we are thankful for the establishment of your church that came about through the death of God the Son that has been birthed by that event, that has been nurtured by God the Spirit and continues to be fed by God the Spirit and that we are guided continually um, by the presence here amongst us. We give thanks for that. We recognize it. We humble ourselves. We realize that it is not because we are more worthy. It is because you've decided to do it for your good graces, Lord, and that we may, in this, may we just honor you and exhort one another um, to remain faithful at all times, Lord, that we may glorify you Um, in our conduct as a congregation and as individual um, Christians, Father. We give thanks for this Lord's Day and our ability to be together. Father, I give thanks for my brothers and sisters who I'm able to look upon from the pulpit tonight, Lord. I, I love them all, and it does my heart good to see them each Lord's Day, and I miss them in the times in between, Father. I ask that you bless them. I ask you to bless our brothers and sisters and our friends who are watching on the internet, Father. And if there are any that do not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, Father, I ask that the Holy Spirit come upon them that causes them to repent and to turn to you, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.